Let's just pray for Tony. Father, I want to thank you for the gifts of uh, men and women that you give to the church to be a blessing to your church and to build your church up. So I want to thank you for Tony, Lord. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him. Thank you for his many years of faithful service at St. Paul's and uh, in other um, into other churches as well. And I want to pray, Lord, for your anointing upon him this morning. I want to pray that he would share with great joy. And thank you, Lord, for who he is. And we want to open our hearts this morning and ask that you'd speak to us through him and build this church up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And I bring greetings from St. Paul's. I'm trying to do something a bit ambitious this morning. So if you uh, lose me, um, wave, and I'll try and sort of stop and go back over it. I have bought some PowerPoints, which I tend not to give to people because I know human nature that you spend your time reading them uh, and not listening. But if you want to scribble on them, uh, there are some there. And if you want to take those, you can now if you're going to scribble on them. But if you read ahead, you'll probably miss what I'm saying. And I'm, what I, you've done, I think, a lot of Bible teaching on a, on a book verse by verse. I'm doing the opposite. I'm doing the big picture stuff. Okay, so we're going to have a quick look at the Bible. But I was interested in the first song we sang, Happy Day, oh happy day, I'll never be the same again. That's a great song. What's the happy day for you when you'll never be the same again? How many people had a conversion which was like that? There was a sort of, a good number? What's the, the real happy day it's rooted on? when your sin was dealt with. It's the cross, isn't it? And I think we're going to get downloads. So although you may have had a radical conversion, I, I probably became a Christian when I was a youngster, but I think I, I really became a Christian, if you like, I think, when I went to university. And that was when things changed radically. And I've never feared death after that. You know, there are certain things that have changed. But what I want to say is that our downloads are only partial. So the danger is you think, now I've had that experience, I've got it. And the answer is you probably haven't, but you may not be aware of it. And that's what I'm really talking about today. So if you know, I mean, just uh, this is, that's the point of sort of, there's a journey because God's plans are bigger than ours. And I think as we're in a time of culture change, we really need to take that on board. And I'm going to try and show you from the New Testament how it was a journey that the disciples went on and some didn't. Okay? So to give a little illustration, if you go, uh, this is a sort of side term, but just an illustration on that. If you look at the Old Testament, the view basically of almost all the Old Testament, I think, and you can think of other examples and tell me, but I think was that victory meant my enemy was defeated and he was my footstool. Okay, that was what they longed for. Anyone think of the one example I can think of where that's not true? It's Jonah, who the Jews think as the, as the best prophet because he was the only one who was successful. But the Ninevites, when they conquered people, they used to put a string through their, their tongue and lead them into captivity. So they were gratuitously violent. And we know that because they had pictures of it in their palaces of leading which was why Jonah had a problem because he suspected God wanted him to go there because he was going to have mercy on them and he did not agree he wanted them footstool and you know the problem with the first world war was that we neither made Germany totally 
powerless and eviscerated it and scattered the people, which was what Nineveh would have done. Nor did we bring them back into the Council of the Nations. And that led to the Second World War. Now the vision that we know Jesus had was making, dealing with opposition by making the enemies friends. But they never got it in the Old Testament, I don't think. And Jonah sort of suspected it, but didn't like it. Now, I think the danger for us is we don't fully get the gospel. So when it says in 1 John, doesn't it? It's that wonderful thing, you know, when we... What's the dynamic to change us is when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So it's a revelation of God's love and God's greatness which is what transforms us. And the danger in the Old Testament was the Jews got it for them. They knew they were the special people. They just didn't get it for others. And the danger for the church is exactly the same. So Paul, and I'll, sorry, I'm, I'm getting on to, I'll get down to the, past the introduction in a minute, but um, Paul in Ephesians 3, there's a, I think there's a secret message in Acts and I think there's this stuff below the surface, which is what I'm going to sort of explain a bit. But Paul in Ephesians 3, at the end of his life, and we'll look at the verse later, says, to me was the mystery given that God really loves Gentiles. And they don't need to be Jews first. And that, I think, was the reason that Acts was written as it was written, because that was a very live issue in the New Testament. Now, how do you get that stuff right into your DNA? And we're going to look at that in a minute. But first of all, in 1983, when I was newly ordained, a verse got me, and I've camped on it ever since. And so, um, oh, actually, I've got them around the other way. Uh, no. Yeah, put up the first slide, 1 Corinthians 2. We'll look at that one first. Uh, this is an end point, I think, for Paul, and this is what my argument's going to come to that he goes to Corinth and he's in fear and trembling. Now, I think that's interesting. What, what made Paul scared? Because not much seemed to, did he? You know, you can understand one shipwreck, but he had several. You can understand one stoning, but he had... You know, he didn't change much. You know, he wasn't that sort of fear man. So he goes to Corinth in fear and trembling, and I'm going to come back to that later. But what he's resolved to do, so I think this is the end of a process I'll tell you about, is that he's going to preach the gospel and he thinks of Christ crucified and he thinks of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit. And I feel that is hugely significant. Now, when I was in 1983, the next slide, please, on Romans, I read this verse and as I say, it's changed my life. It hasn't changed as much as I'd like it to. <laughs> But I was brought up in the Brethren. I was brought up with a gospel where we had wonderful people, you know, could be converted, but we never saw a sign and wonder. And what I saw in this verse in Romans 15 is that he's just doing a throwaway line. He's talking in a reflective mode at the end of Romans about what he's done. And he just says, you know, as I look around, I've, I've preached the gospel fully from a grim to Rome. I've done it all. I've done it by word and deed with signs and wonders and I thought the church I grew up in the church I'm part of are sort of a bit uncomfortable with signs and wonders 
And I think it is intrinsic in Paul's gospel. And I'm going to argue later, and I may get you to agree with me, but other people may not. So, you know, be like Bereans, test it against scripture. Is that I think they led on the experience of God and followed up with the counterpunch of Christ crucified. That was how they spread the gospel. But that's uh, getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So the next verse says, the next slide just puts that together. So there was a doing by powers of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. And then there was a speaking, really important. But that was, I think, about Jesus and him crucified. And he says, I'm not going to do clever words, because he'd done that in Athens, as we'll see later. Um, but it's a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So it's not through clever logic and a clever person when someone can come along, even clever and argue you out of it. It's through you knowing in your knower. So how do you get this stuff in? I think there is an experiential side to that. So for instance, someone like David, I think on the hillside he learnt that God was his shepherd and I think that came through events when God cared for him. When he was being chased around the desert by Saul... I think the material evidence was that God didn't care about him. But he knew God did. <laughs> so you have these psalms saying, God, this isn't fair. But I know you're God, so I'm talking to you because I know you're my Lord, I know you're my shepherd, but this guy's being nasty to me and he's the king, etc., etc. So he knew stuff, uh, I tend to say you know in your knower, which was deeply foundational. Now, it seems to me that there is a, a journey of getting this truth so you know it and you live it. And I want to say that's a continued journey. Some people call it a paradigm shift, which is when it's not just known about it, it is intrinsic to how you view it. And I think that often comes through meltdown. But first, a little sidetrack, to put it in theological terms. And I heard this a couple of weeks ago from Randy Clark, that I thought was interesting. So next slide, please. Next slide. Sidetrack. Where'd you put your theology? Because I, as Randy was saying this, that you have your doctrine, so you believe that Jesus heals, say, and then you have your experience that you've had all sorts of people who've died of cancer or whatever. Where's your theology based? Is it under the truth of God or is it based on your experience? And for most of us, the danger is it's without experience. So you do si do down if you like so the disappointment's way heavier and it's how do you stand in the gap on that and as a vicar in a place for a long time you have to you know I've got an awful lot of failure where we prayed for people and it hasn't so you've got that pastoral bit and I need encouragement to step out and pray for people we've also had notable encouragements but I can think my experience is more negative and then lose the thing that there is much more for us to get which we haven't yet got. Yes? Sorry? You're not hearing me. Okay? Please wave again because I'm liable to think about what I'm saying and not listen, not, not speak out. But so it's, there's a conscious thing when you come to the Bible of saying God What's the truth that I need to hold, even if it's not in my experience, and it may take time to get there, that I live with that tension? 
And there's a lot about us which wants to accommodate so we feel okay. And I think one of the basic things in the Christian life is to feel okay that God loves you, but not to feel okay that you've got it. Because there's always more. And I think it's quite sort of um, radical stuff. So, getting the truth as foundational is my next slide. Um, And I find it interesting as you look at the disciples' journey, the apostles, because what I think was happening was they sort of got it but didn't get it properly. And then Paul got it, and Acts is the story of really working at that. So when they followed Jesus, you would say that was a major conversion. They left everything and went and followed him. So they had had a huge shift for them to do that. When they'd been on the road and it had been uncomfortable and lots of people left Jesus and he said, are you going to leave me too? There wasn't a ringing endorsement. They said, well, no one else has got the words of eternal life, so we'll stick. So they'd been through it, had been bedded in and they'd kept going. But Jesus found that he couldn't get through to them. So in John, you get sort of, I've got to wait till the Holy Spirit's on the inside to do a bit of tugging on these truths because they were still bickering about who was the greatest. Now, what happened for them at the cross was they had a total meltdown. All their world was shattered. But it didn't last very long because Jesus popped out the grave quickly. And so they were sort of restored. So I think what it did was it changed them so they were not fearful. They were proclaiming the gospel. But my contention is they were still Jewish. So they went to the temple to pray. And they didn't get this real depth of the gospel that it was totally changing everything. So, and I can argue that a bit more if you want to, but um, so Peter, for instance, when the persecution happened after Stephen, Stephen lit the blue text paper by saying the temple wasn't necessary because he was a Jew from the diaspora, from the Gentile lands. And they couldn't get to the temple so much. They didn't care so much about the temple. Whereas the apostles cared a lot about the temple. And so you'll notice when the persecution broke out, the apostles could stay in Jerusalem because it wasn't about Jesus. It was about whether the gospel was a sect of Judaism or whether it was for the world. That's what it was over. And so they stayed. It's interesting too, if you look at the verses before Acts 15, Brother equaled Jew, disciple equaled Gentile. And you've even got one verse where the disciples in Antioch collected for the brothers in Jerusalem. Acts 15, you have the big council where they get together and thereafter Christians are brothers. And the one exception there is Acts 15 when it says, brothers, you're not kosher. They call them brothers but say, actually, we've got to sort this out. So there's this fault line that the Jews felt closer than the disciples. Now, I think Paul, Peter, you know, the meltdown with Cornelius. So I think I've put that up there. Uh, just your, I'm going, so you may not know these stories and you can go and look at the Bible afterwards. But Cornelius was an experience for Peter because he wouldn't have done Gentiles. And I love the God just in time philosophy because God sees Peter and he's got this wrong theology. And he thinks, oh dear, you know, Cornelius has got to this moment and he reaches out. And Peter's going to say, no. <laughs> This, this plan of the, the gospel getting out to the Gentiles will be, will be screwed up. And so he goes up on the roof and he has these three sheets loaded down and he's hungry and there's food on them, but it's the wrong sort of food. It's Jewish 
the food that Jews can't eat. And God says, rise up and eat. And he says, no. Goes and comes up down the second time. Rise up and eat. No. <laughs> Third time, you think, oh. Three times, has got a bit of a resonance with him. So he thinks, oh. Hmm. Not sure what I make of that. Cornelius, his servant, knocks on the door and says, I'd like you to come. And he says, okay, I'll go. Now, when he goes, he spends most of his time saying, why well, shouldn't be there? But he gets it, he says, I realise that God shows no favouritism. But he doesn't really get it. So on that instance, he accepts and the experience of the Holy Spirit falling on them is the same as he'd had. So he can't deny and actually God interrupted the sermon and did it while he was still trying to explain the ground rules. So he knew they were in and three times that story is recorded in Acts of him explaining why the Gentiles were in. So he sort of got it. But there are little hints in Acts. Acts 1.8 says, you're going to go first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to the ends of the earth. It's never quoted. Peter never goes back to that because he couldn't absorb that. And so in Galatians later, you have a Barney between him and um, Paul because Paul says, no, you must not add Jewish rules to the Christians. So Peter sort of got it, but didn't get it. Because he hadn't had a big enough meltdown, I think. And he lived still in a Jewish world and a Jewish perspective. And that's why I think the prophecies were that Jerusalem would be the centre of world mission. And because they didn't get it, they were never the centre of world mission. Antioch became the centre of world mission. So they missed out. And one of the, there's a verse, isn't it, that was given to me when I was ordained. God is faithful and he will do it. And that means that even, you know, when you're facing the inadequacy of being a church leader and you think, you know, even my, my granny thought it was a particular stretch for her grandson to be a vicar because she thought vicars were good and she knew I was flawed. So, you know, God is faithful and he'll do it. But the other side of the coin is if you won't do it, he'll do it. And because the Jews weren't going out to go to the... He got someone else to do it. And because their philosophy was so pervasive, it took new people who didn't, hadn't, weren't well trained to do it. So the story goes to Antioch. And it became the centre of world mission. Are we still on the right slide? Yep. Um, so God found that there were people there who hadn't been properly trained. And so when they went to someone, instead of reacting and thinking, oh, they're not Jews. Well, yeah, they just shared the gospel with them. And God meant it was so effective that it grew. And I just find it fascinating that sometimes the growth of the gospel for us will be people who aren't well-trained, so they don't have to do the paradigm shift so much. But then the Jews in Jerusalem hear about it. They hear that in Antioch, it's not the church is growing, it's Gentiles are coming in. So they send down Barnabas. Now Barnabas is a wonderful character. I've got a grandson called Barnabas, which I just love. I wasn't involved in that decision, but I'm just so pleased for dear old Barney. Because he's this wonderful son of encouragement. And he is sent and he goes down there and he thinks, this is wonderful. Isn't it? People coming to God. 
and, and they're real Christians. That's great. And he, because he's a son of encouragement, he, he doesn't notice the non-Jewish stuff they don't realise. But isn't it interesting that when he wanted a teacher, he chose not to go and get a disciple from Jerusalem. I think that's hugely significant. Silent. He had to search for Saul, for Paul. And he goes out and finds Paul and brings him back. And in that way, he restores Paul because Paul had gone off into Tarsus. But he wanted someone who'd got it that the Gentiles didn't need to become Jews first. I think that's very significant. He doesn't go back because he was sent from Jerusalem and he lived in Jerusalem. It would be natural for him to get one of the teaching elders down. And he didn't. So that was the apostles don't get it. Then I wanted to do why Paul and... Have I done Paul's story? Next one. Uh, try the next one. See where we're on the, I'm on track. Yeah, so Paul reflects. So Ephesians 3, this is at the end of his life. This is the verse where he says, to me was the mystery made known that God really genuinely loves everyone. I know it's very difficult for the Jews to understand, but he genuinely loves everyone. That was the mystery. Now, he's saying that at the end of his life. That's his final, probably, letter to the churches. So it was a, still a live issue, and perhaps because he was dying, he wanted to say that clearly, so it didn't regress back. But I think the cat had got well enough out of the bag so the danger would have been church split, um, in a way. So Paul reflects on the Ephesians thing. And so if you look at Paul's story, he'd had the Damascus meltdown when he had felt, I may be... Have we got Paul's journey next? Can you do two on, I think, Paul's journey? So... Paul has, has been absolutely well-trained. He's pucker Jew. He's got all the right credentials. He goes out to persecute Christians. This is going back in the story. He goes out to persecute Christians. The way they die and what they say and all the rest of it, Jesus says when he meets him on the Damascus Road, he says, you're kicking against the pricks of conscience. He knew there was this inner voice saying he was wrong, but he could not accept it because in his framework, he had a good heart in his persecuting Christians and killing them. So when he has a meltdown, he has a total meltdown. It just changes the entire landscape. All that he's believed, he counts as refuse, we find in Philippians, for the excellency of knowing Christ. So I think, again, I may be aberrant on this, and Ant can correct you next week, but I think the, the thing when Jesus talked to Nicodemus, you know when Nicodemus was the theological college head and on the Sanhedrin important reader, I think when he says you've got to be born again, that's not necessary for every Christian. I think it's necessary for everyone who's, if you like, in the wrong system. So for Nicodemus, what Jesus was challenging him to do was what Paul did. He'd got to go back into his mother's womb and forget about all the, all the brownie points he'd got in his journey so Paul does that and he says in Philippians doesn't he I was a, a, a uh, you know I was in the uh, I was got all the right pedigree I trained on the right people I'd got it all there and I got my credentials which would mean that I was a pucker Jew of the top order I counted it refuse 
for the excellency of knowing Christ. So he just bins the lot of it. Now, I don't think the Jews ever went through that sort of meltdown. But that devastating experience meant he came to everything fresh. He didn't trust in his old boundaries and stuff. So he says, okay, God, what are you up to? You love everyone, okay? So he got the revelation of the mystery from God, which was hidden, that God really did love everyone. That was totally revolutionary to him, to the early church, but he got it. And he lived it. And I think the reason Acts is written is to sort of make sure that gets recorded as to the root. And also that the Jewish people knew it, but they didn't get it in the same way. So Paul then has uh, rethought everything. And he went to Jerusalem briefly, and then people were so angry with him that he was smuggled out and went to Tarsus. So he then had this time sitting in the desert, as it were. And I think rethought everything. And that's where, in a way, he was very different. So then it was putting the journey into perspective of how do you do it. So he goes to Antioch, he teaches them, and then he's sent out. Go back a slide, please. And he's sent off from Antioch where the Gentiles were reached. And you've just got there the list of his, his journey. So he goes to Cyprus, and he's a bit sort of confrontational there. There's a guy called Simon Magus, or Elimus, who um, is wrong, and, and Paul blinds him. And lots of people believe from that, but that's a sort of judgment thing. And then he goes from there to uh, Iconium. And I think this is a very significant thing for Paul, that he heals someone. He sees someone's got the, the faith for healing. So he says, rise up and walk. And they're amazed and they're wowed and they think this is fantastic. But because they're Greeks or they're Gentiles, they say, oh, you must be God. So they then make him God. And they just are enjoying the party. And Paul, I don't know whether he didn't understand the language possibly, or anyway, they, they were just having a big festivity. And then he suddenly realised he and Barnabas were being treated as though they were gods. Now, I think for Paul, that is the worst possible experience. I think he could cope with being shipwrecked. He could cope with you not liking him, but he couldn't cope with replacing God. All his Jewish training, you know, they wouldn't have used the word of God because it was so holy. He could accept God was Father, but he was not usurping God. So I think that was a terrifying experience, not because of what they did, but because of, initially, of trying to worship him, but because that was taking God's glory. Now what happens is Jews come along and then the whole thing turns pear-shaped and so they start, they start beating him up. So he's beaten up. So he goes on from there, but I think that's a huge event in Paul's life. Um, so then he goes on from there, doesn't he, to uh, first of all the Jerusalem Council where they sort out that Gentiles are in and they sort of fudge it. So they keep the unity, but they lay some requirements on the Gentiles which they probably won't do in the end, like not eat food with blood in it and stuff like that. So it keeps the unity and some bits drop off. And then he goes, from there, he goes on his second journey and he goes to Thessalonica and to a Jewish setup. He goes to Berea and then he goes to Athens. Now in Athens, he, I think, thinks, oh no, these are real pagans. 
so I won't do miracles. So he does rhetoric, and he can do rhetoric. So he does clever talking. Now, the Anglican Church, by and large, and Enlightenment has been very comfortable with that. That's called apologetics, and you try and argue people that things are reasonable, and then somewhere along the line you slip in about how it's all supernatural, and a lot of people drop off. And that's exactly what happened in Athens. When he started talking about the resurrection, they said, oh, forget that. But a few believed. And so I think he then reflected on that and thought, um, he thought that didn't work. So when he goes to Corinth, he goes in fear and trembling. Why? Because he's going back to miracles and he's afraid, I think, of being mistaken for God. And so he therefore thinks, how do I make a pagan audience not think I'm God if I'm the agent by which people are healed? I'll talk to them about the cross because it's foolishness to the Greeks and it's positively offensive to Jews. And so his mode of going to Corinth is that people, the first encounter must be that they know that God is here. Healing is a sign, as, as well as blessing people, it's often a sign that God loves them and God knows them. It can happen in other supernatural ways. But as an encounter with God is primary. But what he was then saying with the cross is that this isn't just that you found your wonderful person who will then make all your life easy. The answer is you're saved and you're now a sacrifice. You follow Christ in the way of the cross. So it's a counterpunch to a manifest experience of God, of him loving you. Now, I think I was brought up with the cross was the main thing. So you said to people, come to God and die. And there's a truth in that. But the first truth is that God loves you and he has power to transform your life. And you know that, you see it. So in Global Pentecostal and Charismatic Healing, a book uh, written doing research, what it says in, the, uh, in Latin America, Africa and Asia, 80 to 90% of those who become Christians from non-Christian backgrounds, first-generation Christians, cite as a primary influence a healing of themselves or in their circle. They have a spiritual encounter. That's what changes them. Now, I'm better at the talk than doing it. And we're not great at You're probably better than us. But that's my theological basis of what the gospel is and the journey Paul went on and the early church went on as to how to get there, if you like. What was the gospel like? What was the shape of the gospel? Now, there are different eras. And I think the church was very shaped in the Enlightenment by sort of Newtonian physics and losing the, the spiritual side a bit. And that may have worked well in that period. I feel, personally, that we need to get back to people having supernatural experiences of God and, and the cross. Does that make sense? So, so check it, but that's, I think... I feel that I grew up in a church where often we feared sin. Jesus had compassion on sinners so that he went to meet them. 
because he was conscious of his holiness. We as a church are, you know, the New Testament is all about that. We are holy. We've got some defects, so be careful. So Timothy, flee youthful lusts. But by and large, we are sent out. So the Old Testament was the rotten, what I call the rotten apple principle about you live in an enclave and you support each other and you have a, a boundary which allows aliens in as long as they leave their gods outside. The New Testament is entirely different. It's salt and light. And the light is that we don't need to be afraid of sinners. Actually, we need to be drawn to them, friends with them. But they need an experience of God. And then they need to know that that's not the meal ticket for life. But it's something much, much bigger, much, much richer, much, much deeper. And what more than what we've really discovered. <laughs> because God's bigger than us. Amen. So what to take away for you? And it may be around the area of letting God minister to you so you get it. But there may be some stuff you've got in theory, but you haven't got foundation. I think that's probably true for me, that I've got this stuff theory. I'm not sure I've got it really foundationally. And sometimes that makes sense of God then melting us down. Um, so that, if you like, it's like underpinning a building. You've got to go far, oh, far enough down to put health in, or like with a dentist, isn't it? He's got to drill down the drill to get all the gunk out before you can rebuild. Um, and that may be a journey he wants us to go on because we are facing, I think, a, a situation in the world where what we've been doing hasn't, in our period in England, the, the church has become less relevant and less people have come to know him. Um, but how we do that and all that, that's for you to think about. <laughs>